Well, allow me just to begin with two very important words. Merry Christmas. On behalf of the Cricks, our entire family, on behalf of our church leadership, just we, we want to say Merry Christmas to everyone that's here. Um, it's unique that Christmas Day has fallen on a Sunday, and so there is a little bit of a sacrifice involved to, uh, to get up and kind of maybe break away from some of the family traditions that you have on Christmas morning to come gather, but I can't think of a place that I would rather be, honestly, with God's family, with his people, celebrating all that he's done through Christ. Uh, as many of you already know, our church has been going through a four-week four evangelistic sermon series titled, Don't Miss Christmas. And it began three Sundays ago with a message titled, The Light Behind Your Lights. And we had a chance to look at the opening verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And it was a foundational message that helps everyone to know that God is the true light. He is the one who shines into spiritual darkness that, that we live in due to sin. And all of redemptive history points to Jesus Christ and to Christmas, the arrival and the celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shared this at our Eve of Christmas Eve service. All one needs to do is to look at the calendar uh, and, and you quickly see that history is identified by, uh, by the uh, letters B.C., which stands for before Christ, and the letters A.D., which some have mistakenly thought stands for after death, but it actually is a Latin phrase that means anno domini, which means in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of history points to who Christ is. Jesus is the true light of the world who humbled himself, who left heaven, who was born as a baby, and he came to live, to literally tabernacle, to, to dwell among us. The second message we heard focused on the tree behind your trees, which led to a study of the cross. We learned that the first Christmas tree wasn't so beautiful. The cross was God's redemptive instrument selected so that the Lord Jesus Christ could pay the penalty that we owed due to sin. And God loved us so very much that he sent his son to the cross to die in our place as a substitute and pay the penalty that we owed for sin. And we learned that the reality of Christmas and the cross are inseparable in that message if someone wants to know how much God truly loves them, all we need to do is to point them to the cross. How much does God love you? This much. This much. And this led to the third message that we heard this past Sunday. The color behind your colors. We learned that red is the true color of Christmas because it reminds us of two sobering realities. First, it reminds us of the crimson stain of our sin, and that without God's intervention, there's nothing that anyone could do. We would all perish in our sin. Nobody could ever remove the, the, the guilt and, and the stain of their sin or make themselves pure enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. Second, when we see red, it reminds us of the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Only the atoning work, only the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross can cleanse a repentant sinner and provide the perfect, spotless righteousness required to stand in a holy God's presence. We cannot add to that work, my friends. We cannot add to it. Why? Because anything that we would try to offer would be tainted with sin. And it had to be a perfect work because God is a perfectly holy God. And that's why he wants every person on this planet to trust completely in the perfect finished work of his son. And this is why we sing the worship songs and the, and the lyrics that we do. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raise this life up from the grave. And other songs like 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. So the goal of this sermon series has always been to crystallize our focus on Jesus Christ and the gospel so that our hearts would look beyond the worldly mirage of make-believe that focuses, frankly, on all the things that we're familiar with, Santa Claus, elves, stockings, and that we would look to the one who can save the soul, who, who created us to celebrate Christmas in spirit and in truth and to embrace the true, true joy that comes with Christmas. We considered Christmas lights and we determined that there's one light that matters most. We considered Christmas trees and we determined that there's one tree that is most significant. We considered Christmas colors and determined that likewise there's only one color most significant. And today we come to our fourth and final message in our series. And like the previous messages that will have us dial in and have a singular focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, we'll see what God has for us. I hope your hearts will be encouraged. But before I begin, I wanted to ask you, how many of you had the opportunity to open Christmas gifts this morning? Raise your hand. Just a quick show of hands. Everyone's like, Pastor John, we had church this morning. I know, I know. Um, and uh, it was a little bit. We, we opened a few gifts uh, last night, the, the kids, ones that we received, and then we're going to do family gifts this afternoon. And one of the best parts of opening up a gift is the anticipation of what you're about to unwrap, Right? And there's all kinds of thoughts that run through our mind. Um, I wonder what it is. I, I hope it's what I want. And then sometimes we strategically, you got to raise your hand if you're a box shaker, okay? Guilty as charged right here. Box shaker, just try to find out. Um, maybe get an early heads up on what you believe might be inside. I remember when I was a kid, and, and I, I was such a spoiled little brat. I, I truly was. Um, and, and we were a blessed family. We had a, each child got a number of gifts. And I re remember I would take the, the gifts and I would shake the box. And if it actually felt like clothes or tube socks or something boring, I would just throw it to the wayside. And, and I would go on and I, I would look for something that was more exciting, something that felt like a toy or, or, or something exciting inside. And then it would be later that I would realize, later in, in years, that some kids, like my wife, when they grew up, they only received one, one gift sometimes. And some kids throughout the world don't receive even one single gift. Our final message today is titled, the gift behind your gifts. And I share my Christmas experience as a kid because I think in many ways it's possible to approach God's word with the same mentality. We know what gift is inside and though it is something we need, something we, we should cherish, our familiarity sometimes can breed contempt, can it? Right? And so this morning, I, I want us to approach uh, a single verse that we're going to look at with a different mentality. We're going to study it, but, but the mentality that I want us all to have as we unite our hearts intent on one thing is I want us to celebrate it. I want us to celebrate what it has for us. Okay? Let's pray. We'll ask God and we'll get started. Merciful Father, it is Christmas Day. It causes our hearts to rejoice it's a reminder that you sent your son to this earth, that he stepped out of heaven, and he humbled himself as a, as a little baby, breathing in the dust of this fallen world and enduring the cold, dark reality of this world's curse so that he could fulfill your will as the Savior. Help us now to understand your explanation behind your gift of salvation given here in your word. Allow, allow us to celebrate the true joy that comes with it. Illuminate our understanding for the purpose of our redemption and, and why you have allowed us to know the truth. May your word truly be the catalyst of our celebration as we seek to honor you with this time. We humbly ask 
for your blessing of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and we're gonna celebrate Ephesians 2, 8. And here's what it says. And the Apostle Paul recorded these, these words in what was called an encyclical letter that was sent around to the surrounding churches around Ephesus. And this is what he recorded. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And all God's people said amen. Right there, right from the start. You know, personally, I have a deep affection for this verse because it was one that a pastor cross-referenced during a sermon right about the time that I got saved as God was unveiling the truth of the gospel to my own heart. I specifically remember where I was sitting, the time when he looked over, and I'm almost convinced that he was looking right at me when he read it and cross-referenced it, Ephesians 2.8. And so this morning, we're going to focus on four insights from Ephesians 2.8 so that you thoroughly understand and celebrate the gift of your salvation. And it's listed in your notes. The first insight from Ephesians 2.8 is taken straight from the beginning of verse 8, which says, by grace you have been saved. It all starts with the verb. It all starts with, Actually, a verb that's partnered with a participle. And this is going to disclose a radical gospel truth, which is translated, you have been saved. Everything else in verse 8 is along for the ride. It it, it explains this reality. In the Greek grammar, the particle, not the particle, the participle, Uh, reflects a past completed action with continuing results. And we experience this all the time in life. There are completed actions with continuing results. I lost my glasses. I missed my meeting. We had a baby. The passive verb employed here also indicates that this is something that was done to you, not done by you. And so a better example might be you were given a promotion or you were nominated for class president. The completed action involves results that continue in the future. You have been saved. And honestly, this reality alone should stir our hearts to joy and worship. And what is striking is that not only is this phrase shared right here in verse 8, but it's repeated, nearly identical phrase, in verse 5. What picture comes to mind when you think about someone or something being saved? It's a word that has multiple meanings. Maybe you saved money by buying something for Christmas that was on sale, or you had a gift certificate. Maybe you saved your leftovers from dinner to eat for lunch the following day. It can mean to keep safely, securely, or to preserve. It can also mean to rescue from danger or possible harm, injury, or loss. And most of us have seen dramatic footage, right, of somebody being rescued from a car accident or from a fire. It seems like in Los Angeles that those things usually make it onto the evening news. Um, Just about all of them do. And so here in verses 5 and 8, the word save reflects two aspects that we, we, we need to see. It reflects being delivered or saved from divine judgment and delivered and saved to divine salvation. I was trying to find an illustration that carried the shock value of this reality, because I think that if we're, we're honest, we, we lack comprehension. We really do. We don't see all that it entails, and, and part of it is because we have yet to experience and know either of the realities, right? 
We don't know truly what hell and eternal damnation and separation from God is like. We don't know what heaven and eternal bliss and joy is like. I saw this video online of a one-year-old little boy in China who was on a high-rise apartment building, and he ended up walking out. There was a thunderstorm that was taking place, and it was raining really bad. Some of you may have even seen this video. It was, uh, it was on the major networks. And this boy got scared from the thunder, and so he, he ran out on, on the balcony, which was going to just expose him even more to the thunder, but he ran out into the balcony, and this particular balcony didn't have a railing on it. And there was a street vendor who immediately took notice, and you see him, he, he goes over, and he's trying to guide the boy back inside so that he doesn't fall. But then guess what happens? All of a sudden, he falls. And you can see the demeanor just of fright and fear, the countenance of of the vendor going like this, just going as the boy is falling. And you know what happens? In the rain, he catches him, right? He caught him. He caught him. And he saved the boy from death and the destruction that awaited. And it's a a few moments later that he has the opportunity to to put that boy back in the arms of his mother. And maybe it's because I have young children that this made my heart skip a beat so much. I mean, it truly was surreal. The rescue was so dramatic. Dramatic. But it does provide a spiritual illustration for us. As sinners who are born in a fallen world, as fallen people, our sin has us continually falling out of control. We're we're falling. We're perishing. You know, though you don't feel it physically, spiritually, that is what's taking place. We're 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 falling. We're we're hellbound. And we have no power or ability within ourselves to save ourselves. And so a takeaway for you is that gravity is a good reminder of our depravity because we naturally fall. We do. We are inevitably headed toward death and destruction for all eternity. And this explains why the Apostle Paul started out the way that he does in verses 1 through 3 describing the reality and state of our spiritual condition before Christ. Look at verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you've heard the illustration before. It's impossible for someone who is dead physically to help themselves. They are completely and utterly dependent upon an outside source that might resuscitate them or give them life if it's even possible at all. The same is true of an unbeliever's spiritual condition. Not only are they dead, but everything around them, within within them, embalms them and preserves their spiritual death. Deathly lusts, deathly desires, due to a deathly nature and a deathly state, which is the summary of verses one through three. And this is basically how we define human spiritual depravity. It is a state of corruption due to original sin that infects every part of man's nature and makes the natural man unable to know or obey God. It's a desperate condition. And, and to, to truly appreciate the gospel, to appre- truly appreciate the arrival of the Savior, We have to take a deep, hard look and understand that spiritual condition. You know, I don't think we can just so casually become accustomed. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and I I, I sin, right? And we can lose sight of all that that means. And as a result, you and I and all of fallen mankind is completely and utterly incapable of of saving ourselves from the inherited death of our sin nature. 
Only if God intervenes is there any chance to be saved from who we are and the eternal death that awaits. Yet this is exactly what he does according to his word. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God caught us when we were falling. He did. And not only did he, he catch us, but we also need to take notice of the three saving actions that are included in verses 4 through six, he made us alive, he raised us up, he seated us in the heavenly places. And honestly, the truth could, we, we, we could spend on each of those uh, action verbs right there, we could do an entire sermon series and the doctrines that are tied directly to those saving actions of God. But, but for the sake of us understanding what it means that you have been saved, allow me just to share a few brief words. First, he made us alive. This, this reflects the doctrine of regeneration, which is the act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. You have been regenerated. You've been given a new nature in Christ, just as 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And there are some radical testimonies out there about people receiving new natures. And, and, and some of you are, are, are those testimonies, right, about God doing a drastic and radical redemptive work of regeneration in your heart. John Newton, for example, was an English sailor in the Royal Navy and later a captain of slave ships. It said that his mouth and his language was so vulgar and so corrupt that he would go into these fits of rage where he would absolutely exhaust every single curse word that he could think of in his mind as he went through his anger was that intense and he would swear every curse word that he could think of and then it shares that not only would he say the words that he knew he would begin to make up curse words so that he could continue in his bout of anger well after the lord saved john newton he became a clergyman in england and as many of you already know, he penned the words of one of the greatest hymns of all time, Amazing Grace, that we, that we sing. He eventually went on to speak against the, the bondage of, of slavery and the slave trade industry, and his new nature was evident to all. And so it is with every heart that is born again. New desires are born out of a new nature as we walk in newness of life. Addictions are broken. Worldly ambitions and wicked lusts are mortified as new habits and disciplines are formed in Christ. Well, there's two more actions that reveal what it means to be saved. And that's that God raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. And both doctrines or excuse me, both actions relate to doctrines that involve positional justification, uh, resurrection of believers, as well as the glorification, future glorification of believers. Again, way too much for us to take on, but our takeaway is this. All of it is related and embedded within the reality when we see that expression, you have been saved it's awesome because god is awesome 
so often in Christian circles, I think the greater emphasis is on what we've been saved from, right? Enslavement to sin, eternal damnation and death. And sometimes I think we lose sight of the reality of what we've been saved to. We've been saved to a seat that is reserved next to Christ in the heavenly places. You with me? Wow. We have been saved to that reality. And this is why the more you and I set our minds on where we're headed into the future, the greater the impact that it will have on what we do in the here and now. It's true. And this is actually the theme of the entire epistle of Ephesians. It can be summarized in three words. You want to know what they are? This is the theme of of Paul's letter to, to the Ephesians. Practice your position. If you want to jot that down in your Bible. Practice your position. And many of you who are familiar with Ephesians and the other Pauline epistles, you're aware that Paul oftentimes divides his letters into two main sections, which he does here in Ephesians. The first three chapters of the book deal with doctrine and theology related to our position, while the remaining chapters, four through six, relate to our walks or what we practice. You have position and you have practice. In chapters one through three, we read that God chose believers, predestined believers, and adopted believers. God loved believers, converted believers, made them alive when they were dead, and reconciled believers to himself through the atoning work of Christ. That God did this for both believing Jews and Gentiles, uniting them into one new person, the church. This is the great mystery that has been revealed. Then in chapters four through six, we read that practically, Believers are called to walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, and to be strengthened in the Lord to withstand the attacks of the evil one. That, my friends, is a snapshot of Ephesians. And it's beautiful, isn't it? It is absolutely so beautiful. It also helps us understand all that goes into the reality that you have been saved. But the question that still remains is how God made it possible. The beginning of verse eight tells us it's all by grace. For by grace you have been saved. And we're living in a time where I think grace has been overused and to some degree It's been marginalized. It's almost cliche, and we say things, you know, by God's grace, I made it to work on time, or, you know, by God's grace, my upset tummy starting to feel better, whatever the case might be. And this isn't necessarily wrong, but it's important that we understand the different elements of God's grace. God's word reveals elements of what's called common grace, And this is seen in his providential care for his creation. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In God's common grace, he has also provided each and every person with a conscience. Con, with, science, knowledge. And he's inscribed the law on the heart so that there's at least a moral governor on the human race. Otherwise, otherwise, well, I think, to be honest, we, we, we can't even anticipate what this world would look like without the conscience or at least a select number of people being sensitive to their conscience. And then, in this instance, we see what is called uh, um, preserving, or excuse me, redemptive grace, saving grace. And this is grace on an entirely different level. Perhaps you've heard the acronym for, for grace. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. Anyone just interested? Anyone ever heard that before? That acronym? Yeah, I like it. God's riches at Christ's expense, because it really does seem to reflect Ephesians 2.7 very well, which speaks of the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I do think it blesses us to understand grace from both the giver and the receiver's perspective, which in this case would be God and us. Grace is free to the one who receives it, but grace can be costly, can it, to the one who gives it. Important to see that. I'm not going to pretend that I have the perfect working definition, especially when theologians have never been able to agree on a unified definition of, of redemptive grace. Listen to some of the proposals. Theologian Louis Burkhoff says, grace is the unmerited, unmerited operation of God in the heart of man, affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Wayne Grudem defines it, God's goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. John MacArthur says, Grace is the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. I think all three of those definitions capture the essence of what Paul is trying to communicate. In a nutshell, it involves unmerited favor directed towards those who only deserve judgment. Yet God graciously and sovereignly chose to extend mercy and kindness. What is our takeaway? Well, I think the Apostle Paul captures it well in 2 Peter 3.18 when he challenged believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Why? Because that allows us to stay focused on both aspects of grace, if you think about it. It keeps us zeroed in on the unmerited favor, right? Zeroed in on us, and it, uh, the, the recipient of the grace, and it also allows us to focus on the giver of grace and the high cost that came with, with, for Christ. And um, again, God has modeled this perfectly for us. Well, the second insight from Ephesians 2.8, so that you thoroughly understand and celebrate the gift of your salvation, comes when we understand faith. And again, this point is, is taken straight from our passage. You have been saved through faith. In the New Testament, the word faith is used 243 times, 142 times by Paul, and eight times in Ephesians. So there's a snapshot for you of, of faith. Much study has been done on this word, but again, the basic idea of it is to trust, or it's a reliance. It's, it's, it's believing. It's having faith. It is those actions as you trust and believe. One commentator shares this simple explanation. As one who trusts in a chair for support, currently all of you are doing that, right? Did you even think about that before you sat down? I wonder if this chair is going to hold me. Oh, it was, it's built in, right? You knew that it was going to support you. So one who trusts in God's gracious salvation because God is reliable or tr trustworthy. In short, one does not work to support oneself in the chair, nor does one work to obtain salvation. Rather, one relies on what God has accomplished in his son at the cross 2,000 years ago, end quote. And we see great examples of faith, right? Hebrews 11, you know, the, the hall of faith, right, that, that, that we see. And then we also see examples not to follow. I always think of the prophet Jonah. I titled the sermon that the example not to follow, right? Those who lacked faith. And those are given to us and provided for us in God's word so that we would be strengthened, right? Because he allows us to see the outcome of what they went through and we get to learn and trust at their expense. Faith trusts that there will be fulfillment of those things that are told to us by the Lord. 
Faith doesn't waver at the promises of God, but it's fully convinced that he is going to do exactly what he says he is going to do. Faith judges him faithful who has promised, Hebrews 11.11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, the beginning of that glorious chapter. Charles Spurgeon said, Look at the faith of the master mariner. Mariner, a seaman, okay, you guys get that? Not word that, uh, unless you're a Mariners fan, then you, you might uh, uh, be more familiar with the term. But he looses his cable, he streams away from the land for days, weeks, even months. He sees neither sail nor shore, yet on he goes day and night without fear, till one morning he finds himself exactly opposite his desired haven toward which he has been steering. How has he found his way over the trackless deep? He has trusted his compass, his nautical almanac, his glasses, and the heavenly bodies, the stars. And obeying their guidance without sighting land, he has steered so accurately that he has not changed a point to enter port. It is a wonderful thing. It is glorious to be so far out on the ocean of divine love, believing in God and steering for heaven straight away by the direction of the word of God. End quote. Spoken as only Spurgeon can speak. Are you trusting in the Lord? Is he the captain of your soul? If so, may you thoroughly understand and celebrate that through faith you have been saved. Well, there's a third insight, and we're going to do these quickly from Ephesians 2.8, so that you thoroughly understand and celebrate the gift of your salvation that Paul wanted to make sure that the Ephesian believers grasp. Salvation is not of yourselves. When we accurately understand grace and faith in our salvation, this should just be, this should go without saying, right? It should. We should just be like, of course it's not about us. But even in verse 9, Paul expands further when he writes, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Listen to what this pastor writes. This flies in the face of thousands of years of human thinking, effort, and religious activity. Man has always felt like he had to have part in his salvation. Thus, man has developed thousands of competing religions that rely on good works, self-sacrifice, or self-righteousness to save the practitioner of that religion. And that is why the ancient Canaanites offered their children to Moloch. That is why the ancient Phoenicians sacrificed their sexual purity to the god Baal and the goddess Ashtoreth. That is why the Hindus worship cows, monkeys, and snakes. That is why a mother in the jungles of Africa will give a baby to a crocodile. That is why ancient Native Americans worshiped nature. The common denominator in these and all other man-made religions is works. Every religion devised by man requires him to put forth some effort to practice his religion and achieve his salvation. It might be worth something he has to give up to please his God. It might be some work of the flesh like baptism, good deeds, or self-punishment that he performs to win the favor of his God. The fact is, man thinks he has to earn his salvation. End quote. Thank you for enduring that quote, but it's right on point, right? Our pride, and as a result of the fall, naturally wants self to take ownership of something so radical and so profound and so important as salvation. It does. And this reality that this author described, this, this is what drove Martin Luther to the gospel reformation within his own heart. While reading Romans, Luther could not reconcile a gospel of grace with his theology, and his soul could find no rest. 
he kept thinking, I, I, I have to do these things to stay in God's good favor. There always appeared to him something more that he had to do to earn the saving grace of God. And this proved to be true, not just for Luther, but for many reformers. And for my history buffs, this is what led to the, the, the five solas of the Reformation that, that the reformers uh, just kept featuring again and again before the church. They are as follows. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And sola de gloria, to God alone be glory. And these five uh, solas were actually developed as a a response to the false teaching of Roman Catholicism that held the gospel in sacramental captivity. The Roman church taught that the foundation of faith and practice was a combination of scriptures, sacred tradition, and the teachings of magisterium and the pope. But the reformers said, no, our foundation is sola scriptura. The Catholic church taught that a person was saved through a combination of God's grace and the merits that a person accumulates through penance and good works, which saints accumulated over time. The reformers responded with, Sola gratia and sola fide. The Catholic Church taught that we are saved by merits of Christ and the saints and that we approach God through Christ, the saints, and Mary who all pray and intercede for us. The Reformers responded, no, we are saved by the merits of Christ alone and we come to God through Christ alone. Solus Christus. The Catholic Church adhered to what Martin Luther called theology of glory in opposition to the theology of the cross in which the glory for a sinner's salvation could be attributed partly to Christ, partly to Mary, partly to the saints, and partly to the sinner himself. The reformers responded, no, only the true gospel is that which gives all glory to God alone as is taught in the scriptures. Again, sola scriptura. And in the end, what happened? So many of those reformers, what did it cost them? It cost them their lives. They, they laid down their lives for the sake of the truth because it was that important. They, 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 they were overwhelmed by these sacred truths of Scripture that they affirmed of a true biblical gospel which clearly reveals, as Ephesians 2.8 does for us today, salvation is not of yourselves. And as I mentioned earlier, this was going to be the verse that allowed me. I was raised in a Roman Catholic family. I was indoctrinated with the view that somehow by going to church on Sunday and not committing any mortal sin, that that was going to allow me to eventually go to heaven someday or at least minimize my time in purgatory as I would be purified in a state that is unbiblical before you could possibly enter. All that took place, and I was saved from the work, works-based system of Catholicism when the gospel changed my heart and my understanding. And some of you here today, you might even, you might currently be attending a guest in, in a Catholic church. I would encourage you to, I would love to have more conversation with you. I can point you to some resources that would really bless you to help you see these truths with greater clarity. In time, I also learned more about the correct connection between faith and works. True faith that rests in the finished work of Christ will leave evidence of good works or what the Bible calls fruits of repentance. Good works provide evidence of saving faith, but they never define our faith, and that's critical to understand. They they, they provide evidence that we are born again, that we are saved. But they never define our faith. Even Ephesians 2, 
10 concludes by saying, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in him, that we could walk in them. Even, even the good works, he's prepared in advance that we get to walk in, right? We can't even take ownership of that. You know what? Every time we cover good works and, and faith and there's a tension there, there, there truly is, right? Because there are passages in scripture, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves, examine yourself, make sure your faith is real, right? There's a way to maintain a gospel of grace and to also be obedient to the command to examine your, your faith. And was there a sheet in your, um, in your bulletin well, I don't have to spend a whole lot of time on that, but I really, that was going to be my, my uh, thing to give to you uh, to, to have some time and to reflect upon later. That sheet is uh, very, very helpful. Well, this brings us to our conclusion, which is really the last insight from Ephesians 2.8, so that we can celebrate the gift of salvation. Believers need to know that by grace you have been saved, through faith you have been saved, Salvation is not of yourselves. And finally, salvation is God's gift to you. The last part of verse 8 couldn't be more clear. Salvation is a gift. You don't earn gifts. And certainly, giving and receiving gifts is a highlight for us, especially around this time of Christmas. And I enjoy watching People being blessed with gifts and receiving gifts as much as anyone. I, I really do. Giving gifts, especially when they're not deserved, is, is a reflection of the very character of God. Every Christmas gift is emblematic of the greatest love gift that God ever gave man. The Lord Jesus Christ. Life and salvation that only he can provide. And God's word, as we've witnessed today, even describes the Christian salvation as a gift in Ephesians 2.8, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a gift. Salvation is God's grace to mankind. It is his kindness to reveal this gift when a world that we live in with people who want nothing to do with him or his purposes. And in the end, God's gonna give them what they want. Separation from him. They want separation now from him. And all hell is, is a place where they get, a sinner gets what they want. Separation from God. Life on the side of the cross, we know, is filled with heartache. There's many consequences because of sin, death, disease, destruction. The beauty of God's gift is that he promises to take all those things away for eternity. It is what we are saved to. Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And you know what's so tragic? It is that many people will reject the gift. Right? And it has to be received. You must trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come to him on his terms. You must turn and repent of your unbelief and say, I believe, I believe that he died and paid the penalty. I believe that he is my substitute. I believe that he has saved me to eternal life and that he is waiting. It says that he's gone to prepare a place for us and that where he is, we shall soon also be. Do you believe? Do you believe? Will this be the Christmas that you finally unwrap the gift of Christ and the gospel? For those of us who have unwrapped the gift of his grace, we affirm that every Christmas since has always been a sweet reminder. Has it not, church? And it just continues to get sweeter and sweeter as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
will allow me to close the message with the very same two words that I opened up with. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads and we thank you for this sermon series that has allowed us to crystallize, again, our focus on all that Christ is and all that he's done through the gospel. And we rejoice in the truths that you've allowed us to celebrate from your word. And Lord, I'll be the first to admit that it's hard to get our minds around it. It's hard to comprehend. Nobody likes to even think about what the potential possibility of hell and damnation could be like. We, we know that no good thing exists there. We know that it's a place of torment. We know that it's a place that your word describes as weeping and so sad and gnashing of teeth. It's a violent place. And our hearts can just be overwhelmed just by the little violence and the little gnashing of teeth that we see just on this side of the cross. Can't imagine if that's all that there ever was. And yet, in your goodness, in your mercy, you saved us from that. And it's because you sent your son. It's because you sent the Savior. And not only did you provide reconciliation and redemption through his life, his death, and his resurrection. But as a result, you've saved us to an eternity spent with you. And that is the greatest gift. That truly is the gift that will forever keep on giving. And so we want to celebrate that reality allow these truths to capture our heart. I pray that if there's someone here today that's been running f from you for a long time, that today you would stop them in their tracks, that you would cause them to turn and trust, that they could be embraced by your loving hand and that you would grant them a new nature, a new heart that would give them new desires to walk in newness of life. That's our prayer for every single one of our lost family and friends. Would you do that work? Would you do that work? Would you do that work? We pray. We thank you that Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross and that the fitting words that he shared, it is finished. It is finished. The work of redemption is finished. All we must do is come to him. We thank you for this great truth. It brings joy to our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray all of this. Amen. Amen.